sometimes the most difficult part of a talk, giving a talk, is starting it. All the all the ideas well up and then keep going back into a emptiness. It's like well, I don't know. <laughs> I could say that I could say that. <laughs> anyway, I I was thinking about that and then remembered the first talk, Dharma talk that I heard Ajahn Chah give when he came to England in 1977. At, uh, in Oxford, and at the time. I'd been on a retreat and had left the retreat so I could go hear this talk. <clears throat> and um, it was in Thai, of course, and being translated, I couldn't understand the Thai, but the translation, I found what he was saying was very wonderful. It was a wonderful talk. I can't remember what he said, but the combination of his <laughs> his presence and his... Uh, his very direct reflection on the Dharma was was really. Uh, I just kept sitting there thinking, "This is wonderful. This is great. This is so good." And then at the end of the talk, he said, "If you've been sitting there thinking this is good or bad, you haven't been listening properly." <laughs> I thought that's really good. <laughs> So learning to listen, is in a way, meditation is the art of listening a little beyond our initial reaction to our contact with our experience, and often alongside that, a, a judgment or dismissal, usually around the sense that it should be another way, you know, it should be a bit different somehow, or as we've been talking about and contemplating and learning to listen more accurately into, well, this is actually how it is here and now and then working from there. One of the um, Ajahn Buddha Dasa, one of the Thai, very famous Thai monks, who said if you had a, a necklace to wear then you should have little amulet with the phrase on it this is how it is rather than some maybe protective deity which is very common in Thailand and a little amulet with a Buddha or something he said you should have the phrase this is how it is because as we reflect on that it aligns us with a, a more wise relationship rather than an ideal idealized relationship and I think a lot of just listening to myself a lot in meditation, <laughs> listening to people, groups, and and I, I think a lot of our difficulty is uh, is really around our struggle to accept our human humanness, <coughs> human beings, and the limitations that we have, and the struggles that we have, and the idealized idealized sense of somehow we have this idealized sense that it should all be a bit different somehow, maybe a bit better. We're coming into harmony with actually the, the preciousness and the beauty that's possible as a human being. I think is, uh, I mean, really contemplating that a lot more recently about just 
the wonder of being human, having a human heart that can respond and feel and uh, reflect on life and make gestures to to help others, to befriend others, um, to share and to communicate and what a gift that is. And how it's actually very nice just to be human (laughs) without having to be angelic in any way or grandiose in any way or, or collapsed and diminishing of ourselves. Usually when we come to meditate in an experience like this, a lot of what we're digesting and working with is the momentum of the tendencies and the patterns and the habits that we've accumulated, often unconsciously in a, in a lifetime. And sometimes what happens is we can have great sense of stillness or space, perception of emptiness, and sometimes then unexpectedly some old tendency will come up in the mind of worry or fear or negativity. And we can feel ourselves just being diminished and feeling like something's gone wrong. And these tendencies, the Buddha calls sankara, which is a word we've been using, which is it's like a shaping or a patterning, the way we experience ourselves through our thoughts and our memories and our feelings. And he says some of these sankharic, some of these patterns are very light. They appear in the mind and we apply a moment of attention, a moment of mindfulness, and they don't really bother us very much. So we can sit here quite peacefully and a, a thought comes up, oh, I, I, you know, I'd like to go and phone a friend, I'm feeling a bit lonely. And you just watch it and maybe feel a bit not a very nice feeling, you watch it and it dissolves, disappears and you find, oh, it's okay, I'm just sitting here, it's fine. The mind reestablishes itself, more st- stable. So some very light, you see it and it, and it doesn't really disturb. And so some, some of these patterns are more, have more energy in them. They're like lines drawn in the sand. We've invested more energy and reacted and acted on them. So when they come up in the mind, feeling a bit lonely, and it doesn't, we see it and it doesn't really, it doesn't really dissolve. It has more, more power in it. We start maybe getting feel upset and concerned, worried. And then we just get washed away. Have to, have to do something about this. And it, has, it just has a lot more energy. And then maybe we, at a certain point, an hour or two later, we realize, oh, it's not really a big problem. I'll be going home tomorrow anyway. <laughs> Next day or it's going to change or... You know, and it and it, uh, it it resolves itself. Uh, you know, mind stabilizes, and we just with with what we're doing, carry on. But so some of these patterns, some of these sankharas, these tendencies are, are very powerful. Over a lifetime, we've reacted and we've invested a lot of energy. And he said those are lines, more like they're drawn in in rock. They, they've. They, and the and the uh, the mind's energy they get stimulated 
difficult feeling or, or some perception or some memory, it's like the mind's energy will run down that groove, get stuck in that groove. So all, all the sense of stability, well-being will sort of move down that, that uh, groove that's been carved out the indentation in, in a very solid way. And those are more those are often ones that we actually share. We might have particular storylines, but when you peel them away, they're a basic sense of of fear or or resistance, aversion, negativity. And with those, when those kind of tendencies come up in the heart and in the mind, then they need a lot of patience. It's not a question of just seeing them and they disappear. It's often a question of just getting over years sometimes very familiar with that pattern and being less and less shaken by it, being able to recognize it when it appears. Recently, I was um, when I was in South Africa with uh, Kirisaro earlier this year, We'd gone on a, a little holiday. It's pretty hard for us sometimes to get time out. And we decided we'd go to the beach. It's very beautiful. And uh, take a few days out. And we found this nice lodge. And uh, it's beautiful. And we went for a meal and beautiful moonlight. And <laughs> perfect, really. Perfect evening. And sitting there and... And somehow we had a disagreement about something. <laughs> this is a confession to deflate this idealism about the perfect couple of Kirisara and Tanisra. We do have our meltdowns, I can assure you. <laughs> um, being in the human realm. And... Uh, so it's perfect evening. We're just sort of listening to the Indian Ocean, the waves crashing, and we landed up having this altercation about how much we should leave for the tip. <laughs> so it's terribly embarrassing to admit it, but you know, it's. I'm sure for those of you that have been in, you know, no, can empathise hopefully with the the dilemma. So anyway, somehow for me, I, I was, uh, I got into a real state about this and um, and when when Kilisara and I have a, a moment like that we have different ways according to our patterns of reacting his one his pattern is to inquire what's going on what's happening which is for me is like the worst thing possible because my pattern is to disassociate and disappear so he's like f- trying to find out what's happening and I've disappeared and I can't even remember what, what, what's wrong. <laughs> what's so it's not always easy and in, in those moments. And so what was interesting, though, is that um, I had been doing a bit of meditation over the years and <laughs> awareness practice, and I just started to, to be with my experience because it started to trigger. I could feel it triggering into a, to a, a very deep pattern for me around the issue eventually when I started to uncover what was the issue it was the feeling of insecurity the money was concerned with deeper patterns and issues around stability insecurity placement belonging 
So something that was very petty, really, just started to ricochet into this. And then the whole Pandora's box about, well, I don't really belong anywhere. Don't know if I'm living here or there. or And it's just this really, really difficult state. And in the end, I decided, I was sitting there, by this time on my own, poor Kitty Sarah, I'd sort of roasted him out of the picture. And... Uh, <laughs> One of my roastings, and, uh, and he was like, "I'm I'm dealing with this on my own." So very very defended, very uptight, and just sitting there by the ocean and thinking, "Well, I don't belong anywhere. The best thing I can do." And then just the next trap door that opened was into this very deep sense of lack of worth, very painful place. It's, it's a very early uh, patterning, wounding, very very. I said, well, the only resolve for this is I'm going to walk into the ocean and let the sharks eat me. (laughs) At least they might enjoy me. (laughs) Actually, I didn't think that last time. I just made that up now. But I did think about (laughs) tough old meat. I did think about, you know, like, well, just sort of walking into the, and then, you know, this sort of, piece of some wisdom said, you know, don't be dumb, you know, that's really a dumb but what was, so, what was so interesting is that the mindfulness at that point was really strong it was just watching and with this like the, this trapdoors opening deeper and deeper into what basically, when hitting the, the, the sort of the, the lower ground floor was just a place of pain extraordinary pain and all these stories and layerings on top. And for me, it was a very, very wonderful moment. It was a very painful moment, but just to see that actually it was... I'd always seen the edges of those that pattern, you know, the, the reactivity, the fear, the anxiety, the, the hardening up, the separating out, the uh, irritation, the blame... But it, the defence mechanisms hadn't really softened and opened enough to see underneath it's just... Dukkha, it's just a sense of pain, the, the wound, the wound of, you know, to, that in many ways all of us carry in different ways, but we're just very, very layered and defended around. But being able to just hold awareness, it was almost, it was allowed that, as I was saying earlier, as Ajahn Sumedho used to talk about, the prisoners of consciousness, those things that are kept locked in, it allowed that to begin to just loosen and free, I just could feel like a bubble just on the ocean of awareness, just come up for being noticed, just to see it and to be, to allow it, didn't have to even let go, but just to allow it to be noticed and just a heart just softening and opening and wow. And uh, this has been this. I'm just to, I'm just giving an example, really, a personal example of working with awareness, with say, pattern that, that's very familiar territory for me. You, you might have your own variations on a theme, but what I've noticed over time working, I mean, that was another piece that came up this earlier this year. But over the years, I've sort of been working and, and seeing a bit more clearly, is that sometimes that those tendencies will come up the more you see them. And they don't have, as you start to see them, have confidence in the ability to know them and not be shaped by them. 
they begin to lose their power. They might still come up, or sometimes they come up more like shadows, and they might wobble you a bit. But they begin to to lose power, you know, rather than sort of collapsing and going into a whole state for a day or two days or a week. It can be more. It can be shorter length of time. And for me, that's one of the the, the great fruits of this process of working with awareness to realize that that listening you know we're really listening into our being in a way that we're allowing that which doesn't we don't really need anymore to be freed we need those kinds of patterns really i can mature out of them once i can see them more mature relationship but what's interesting is that often those patterns are sparked in relationship <laughs> sometimes it's easier to sit in our cushions isn't it when when you know we are not stimulated and not being challenged in certain ways or not being uh, you know as they say our buttons not being pushed and then when we go out into our workplace into our relationships into mm-hmm. contact then, then we can find a lot of things being stimulated so this practice of uh, how to bring, how to begin to the vipassana, the inquiry, the reflection. It's really an integrative practice because it's beginning to encourage the ability to work with whatever comes up rather than just feeling that we just got to have stillness. But actually, whatever comes up, we can begin to feel confident that it's not uh, something that's going to overwhelm us or a hindrance, but it's an opportunity an opportunity to to strengthen our capacity for awareness, for compassion. There's a a wonderful quote by Sahara, who was a well, actually, a bit of a mythical figure, uh, an Indian sage, who's apparently one of the teachers of Nagarjuna, the great sage and Indian. Um, philosopher on treatises who wrote the treatises on emptiness he said while suffering increases bliss increases the greater the mental afflictions the mightier the primordial wisdom the larger the pile of wood the greater the blaze What I like about this quote is the fearlessness in it. It's the sense of rather than being cowed by what we meet in life to realize that as we allow ourselves to feel and resonate more accurately with whatever life presents us, it's an opportunity to develop a a heart that can grow in strength and compassion. Sometimes, you know, we feel well, you know, we, you know, how, how do we, how do we do that? But one, one way we can we can begin to to reflect around that is to look at others that have have transformed and been with very difficult situations. Sometimes that can be a real inspiration. For example, thinking of having lived in South Africa for many years, I've been very inspired by Mr. Mandela and his ability to have been in prison, imprisoned for 27 years, 
um, which you know incarcerated in a in a, a very small cell. Any of you have been to Robin Island and seen the size of the cell? It's a third of the size of this level that the three of us are sitting on here. And you know, I mean, that's that's quite something. Imagine that for for twenty seven years being removed from your family and from your um, your loved ones, from your community. And for to be able to go through that fire, I mean, there must have been moments when there must have been deep despair and isolation and difficulty and pain in that. But to be able to go through an experience like that and come out the other side with this enormous consciousness of of uh, inclusion, inclusivity, you know, that gave the new South Africa, helped birth the new South Africa into the possibility for it to have a, a consciousness of reconciliation and it's not an easy journey, there's all sorts of issues <laughs> but on the other hand to have able to hold one person you know, fate des- designated him in this role holding that level of consciousness, I find that inspiring and although we might not be able to have such heroic journeys in our own lives but to realize that life presents us in its own way perhaps in smaller ways less public ways these opportunities to really to really meet what we're presented with and it's not so much we have to be compassionate i think because i think compassion happens when we allow when we train i think it's a discipline in many ways we train the attention just to be with if it's painful, what's there that's painful without being shaped by it, without resisting it. And in the, in the Buddhist way, there is the encouragement to do that. We start with our own being, but the encouragement to extend outwardly. The whole sense of the bodhisattva ideal is that ideal that we extend that heart to meet the pain wherever we find it wherever it presents itself to us in life. So it's not just as some people have felt in a retreat, it's a bit selfish, it's just about me, but it's really a training of the heart where we can extend that strength and fearlessness and impart that, perhaps in moments, to others. When we know how to meet those places in ourselves, and we're not overwhelmed or intimidated or crushed, we might in one moment, not all the time, because you know, it's not an easy thing sometimes, to meet life, what it presents to us, and we get constricted and shut down. But there might be a moment, it's a very important moment, when we're with someone, we're just able to meet them where they are and to allow the attention, the heart, to just resonate with their pain, without pity, without needing it even to perhaps fix it or find a solution, but just sometimes being able to listen Maybe a solution can arise, maybe not. I don't think, in some ways, compassion is always about being able to, to fix. There's so many things in life, aren't there, that, that are really impossible somehow to, to resolve. And it's difficult to be with, but to be there to witness to, to, to be there to attend to. And if possible, if we have the energy and the capacity to, to be able to respond. This, in a way, is a very beautiful ideal in the Buddhist way, the ideal of the Bodhisattva. 
developing this kind of courageous heart. But it's also an ideal, if we're not careful, can again, as ideals do, they can intimidate and overwhelm us. So it's, it's quite useful to start in a more immediate way. I remember when um, I've, I was once went to a teaching of His Holiness Dalai Lama, and he always starts his teachings on by giving bodhisattva vows. And I found myself taking these bodhisattva vows and then going into a complete and utter panic about what have I done because the vows are I'm going to I vow. Um, until all sentient, you know, while all sentient beings remain, I vow to stay in this world, or something like that. I can't remember now exactly what it is. <laughs> but I just suddenly had this, you know, being a real Theravadan nun at the time that just wanted out of Sangsara. Where's the exit path that get me out of here? <laughs> it's just suddenly thinking, God, have I just made this vow to hang around until the last <laughs> blade of grass is liberated? I just felt incredibly oppressed and, and in complete, complete tiz about it. And what have I done? What have I com- just committed myself to? And the, I mean, of course, I'm, I was thinking about it from an ego place, from the sense of self, which it's not really about, you know, about me projecting me into the next few aeons. I mean, please. <laughs> the heroic me. <laughs> and when I went to, to talk to Ajahn Sumedho about it, I just, I, you know, like, I've just done this thing. <laughs> he said, well, the Bodhisattva, he said a very beautiful thing. He said, really, the Bodhisattva heart is about, can you be patient with how it is in this moment? Can you just be patient with this, with this moment? Without demand, without, you know, not the patient that's waiting for it to end. I thought, oh, yeah, sigh of relief. That, that's, you know, I might not be good at it, but I can, at least that's manageable. <laughs> you know, can I just practice in that way? Just this moment, patient with whatever presents my, to me. A conversation, uh, a work challenge, a disaster, a beautiful meal at the seaside, an argument. <laughs> a process of unfolding into my deepest patterned wounding self can I patiently be with that listen to those places in myself that are upset crying can I extend that sometimes to others so so this is really this this beautiful resonance of karuna the ability when the heart is unobstructed to resonate with the suffering and pain uh, in a way that's working towards meeting it with 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 attentiveness, with courage, with listening, with fearlessness, with patience. And this wonderful quality is called a Brahma Vihara, an abiding of the divine, is balanced usually in our contemplation with the the quality of equanimity. These two are often talked about together to cultivating if we have a lot of compassion and we're very someone was asking about well how can we just be so open in the world and there is so much pain and there is so much suffering. I mean just last night for me listening to the the cows 
crying, I just found it almost unbearable. I just, you know, it's just sometimes it is really unbearable. You know, when you just have moments of openness and you really feel what's going on and what's going down. And, and for me, often it gets evoked compassion around animals because I find they're very vulnerable. They can't speak. Um, but, you know, other you know, human beings, beings, you know, it's very, very poignant sometimes life and very painful. So it's, you know, and if we just, and if we're in service work where we're just all, all the time with that side of life, it can get, it can get quite heavy. And so this equanimity is a, is a very dispassionate contemplation. It helps to balance. You know, the two help to balance each other. And this, we've talked, in a way, we've, a lot of what we've talked to and been practicing is around this quality of equanimity. It's around the ability to let be, to, to let go, to see un, ultimately the emptiness of all things. That in fact, the sense of me, you, living beings in the, in the bodhisattva way all of that emerges from the root of the mind which is empty is emptiness in that view or in that perspective there are no living beings <laughs> we did, Kirisara and I did um, we, we do these long these long retreats in, um, at our hermitage in South Africa usually with small groups and we'd we just finished once a two-month retreat and we were taking some people down to the airport. They were flying out. And we decided, I don't, I don't think it was a very good decision, but we decided to go to the movies <laughs> after this long retreat. And uh, it was some movie we wanted to catch up on. and Because we don't get... So it's a three-hour drive from the hermitage to the city, so we don't really... It's not an easy just to sort of pop in to go see a movie. It's a big effort to get, you know... So on the way back, we thought we'd go check out a movie, and it was Sunday afternoon, and we went to the local shopping mall, a huge shopping mall, and it was absolutely jam-packed with people. And I sort of walked, we walked into the middle of this off a two-month retreat, and it's like just full of this twee pop music and people selling things and people all dressed up and going to the movies and milling around and teenagers all dressed up and... It was a, a, a complete squash of people, and I just completely freaked out. I just thought, "This is crazy!" You know, too, and, and somehow there was a shift in my perception. It was very, very unexpected, and I just suddenly had this sense or this saw. You saw it. It's actually really empty. There's actually no one here. <laughs> in reality, there's no one here. It's like the five khandhas unfolding: <coughs> form, perception, feeling. You know, in some ways it's quite poignant because there's ne- never anyone here really and there's this sort of on, on that level profound level you know, and, then, and then there's the, the sense of, uh, of people you know, you know just the poignancy again of looking for someone looking for something dressed up and going somewhere and, oh. but it was, it was a beautiful moment because I could feel with that sense of the emptying out of myself overwhelmed by this body of humanity and freaking out and my stillness gone and being dispersed and realizing it's all space in a way it's all energy just moving changing flowing in that perception it also allowed me to be more with what was happening more free more compassionate more just less sort of caught up in my own sense of self and reactivity so this 
this upeka, this equanimity, in a way, at its deepest root, it's having, it's being able to empty things out. And in that place, just seeing that the, what we usually interpret as self, another, name, this person, that person, this situation, that situation, designate the forms of life in a particular way. On some level, it's actually a, a lawful unfolding of cause and effect. So classically or traditionally, the contemplation on equanimity is a contemplation on karma. It's that everything is unfolding according to its own lawfulness. This is not a very easy contemplation for, for many of us, but it's just to have it there as a, the classical reflection. And I, find, I find it for myself quite peaceful because in a way it allows... It, I, it's not that I... It means that I like what's unfolding or I approve of it or I don't want it to be a different way, but there's a certain place when I enter into that contemplation where it just deeply allows everything to be as it must be in this moment, including the wars, the famines, the pain, all of it. Again, it's not to say one would like it that way, but in this world, it is as it is. It's unfolding according to its own nature, the dark and the light, this constant play of the, the polarities. And the equanimity is really to be able to stand equal, the heart not equal in being disinterested, but equal in being connected with both the dark and the light, the up and the down, the loss and the gain, the praise and the blame, the success and the failure, the coming and the going, the births and the deaths. And in a way to cultivate that one, this is really, uh, this is in a way turns us back into this root of awareness, being rooted in the heart that can be more unshakable. Then the the other two Brahma-viharas, these all of them balanced together, these are the four energies, divine energies, although we have this human incarnation, they're called Brahma, meaning from the, the Brahma or the divine divinity, the sense that actually as human beings we also can radiate that which is usually designated as divine. You know, we do have that potentiality. And so this the compassion and equanimity is also balanced with loving kindness, the metta that we were reflecting on this morning, and joy. The, the kindness, the discipline of, in the way of loving kindness is to be in contact with the world without dwelling in aversion. Aversion might come, we all feel aversion, irritation, anger, negativity, but without the training of the heart not to dwell there, not to make much of, but to notice, to work with consciously, to illuminate, to transform, to endure, But not to, uh, and to, you know, as we get more skilled in that Brahma Vihara, to actually be able to turn that energy around and respond with friendliness. So it's a more, it's a more, it's not, it's not the passion of 
compassion. It's a it's a more friendly a friendly heart. It's it's the ideal of metta is to be able to be with people whether we like them whether we don't like them, whether we're attracted or not. To, but to be more unconditional in our ability. Clearly, we're going to have preferences and friendships and people we don't like. That's natural. But to cultivate a heart with where we can even in our mind's eye have moments of can we just hold these people in a more equal way. And to be friend, how to be a friend in life, how to be a friend to others. Mm. Where we can. Mm. So it's this, in a way, the metta is a quality of friendliness, non-aversion. And from that the Buddha said that many, many blessings come. Just that practice is very, very profound, very powerful, just to hold the heart in a state of non-aversion, just to cultivate how to have moments of extending loving-kindness, friendliness to others. He said, someone well-developed in that kind of heart becomes beloved. Becomes beloved by others, dear to others, protected by the angelic kingdom, which I like very much. (laughs) Calling all angels. (laughs) Becomes... Um, quick to concentrate, the mind is less resistant to how it is, it's able to settle. It's a, it's a, uh, not a, you know, these in a way are, are very human qualities, but they're also divine, but they're also something we can cultivate in relationship. And then the, the last great Brahma Vihara, the radiance of the unobstructed heart when it comes into contact with that which is beautiful, that which is good, that which is funny. It's sort of catching, because sometimes it just also balances suffering. Sometimes we can really, some people have said that, oh God, you know, going so much on about suffering. <laughs> These Buddhists always suffering, always so heavy. And, you know, what about joy? You know, it's only joy. And in many ways, the seeds of joy is being able to, and I think in some ways, perhaps in quieter ways, for some of us, we really get, can get the feeling of that in our moments of just being able to appreciate, appreciate something sometimes very simple. And often that can appear in the natural environment. It's more complicated with people, isn't it? Usually it's talked about this Brahma Vihara as a practice that helps to bring about an antidote to competitiveness, jealousy, comparing, the way that we, that we uh, see each other and compare ourselves. And Mudita has talked about a quality where we actually wish for the welfare of another. We, or another way of saying it is being committed to seeing the good in life. It's very, very easy to lose touch with that, to to lose touch with it within ourselves. You know, we can really put ourselves down a lot, how we don't do this right, don't do that right, don't do the other right. But having moments of being able to really stay connected with the goodness in ourselves, in our intentions. And maybe we do screw up, we all screw up. Maybe we didn't say exactly the right thing. Maybe we didn't get back to someone we should have done. But so what? <laughs> you know, these things happen. But can we notice our intention? 
you know, the intention that we have sometimes very, can be very pure, very good. You know, we don't value that. So noticing being committed to our own goodness and being committed to seeing that in others, it's, it's quite hard because the mind is so easy judging, negative, comparing, depressive. It's like gravity can fall without, without some awareness, some contemplation. It falls into like one of those, as I was saying earlier, those treadmills, the mind's energy, how it's... You know. And for me, even extending that into the world around us. I mean, it's a very, very intense, this, the world that we catapult, being catapulted into more, has more and more intensity, I think, more and more potential for crisis, different levels, politically, ecologically. It's a very, very difficult time to hold goodness. It's very easy to just feel collapsed with, a, with the overwhelming sense of doom and dread and very, very powerful, destructive forces. But for me, there's something about really holding up the possibility, not losing hope or the possibility or sight of that which is wholesome, that which is, has the power of goodness in it. And you know, the more of us, the more that that happens, the more it can become a real force. The more others can recognise it, the more we can recognize it in ourselves. So, so mudita is something like that. It's, in, it's being able to really have in, in the sensory world to actually resonate with that, which is beautiful, which is joyful, which is beautiful friendship, beautiful experience without the grasping necessarily, without the, you know, but being able to have moments of joy, appreciation, savoring of the beauty of our lives. The poem by Rumi is something like each morning I wake up empty and afraid. Don't go into the study and take down a book from the shelf. Pick up a musical instrument and let the (laughs) beauty that you love be what you do. Or something like that. (laughs) There are many ways to touch, kneel and kiss the ground. There are many ways to kneel and kiss the ground. There are many moments in life when we can savor the grace of it, the beauty of it, in the midst of the, the pain, in the midst of the struggles, in the midst of our crazy patterns that we believe in so much and get wound up by, by so much. There are many ways in this moment to appreciate what wonder it is to have this space together. What wonder it is in this mysterious universe to look out and see the infinity of the sky, one minute tiny blob in the whole cosmos, this planet. What mystery it is to be in Africa in the dark night and look up and see the infinite stars and to hear in the distance the jackals calling 
just to be able to feel the immensity and beauty of that, the hauntingness of it. To be able to walk in the town, in the crush of people, and to see in the pavement a little delicate blade of grass growing through the crack, hopeful of its existence being able to wake up and meet a, a new day, be given a new day. We don't know how long we'll be here, do we? The Buddha said, oh, our life's like a, a flame, a candle flame. Any moment, wind can come. <coughs> we don't know when that moment will be. So may, while we have the time here, may each of us grow in these divine abidings, rooted in this one heart, in this capacity for awareness, for presence, for simply being here in our humanity. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.